in the 13th century BC, Israel was enslaved by the Egyptians uh, who were prospering off of the labor of the Israelites' backs. Surely at that time, the people of God were thinking, where are you, God? Centuries later, the 6th century B.C., Israel was conquered by Babylon and taken into exile into their country. Babylon flourished as one of the superpowers of the world while Israel was enslaved by them. Surely, God's people were thinking, Lord, how can you allow this to happen? Fast forward to the first century, 100 A.D. Christians are being tortured for the amusement of thousands in the Roman Colosseum. Surely, God's people were crying out, Lord, are you going to let them get away with this? This century, in North Africa, in Afghanistan, in North Korea, in India, the church of Jesus Christ is still afflicted, the wicked are still arrogant, and for God's people who are suffering, it still feels like God is absent. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 10. And Psalm 10 is the cry of the afflicted asking the Lord why he seems to be so distant and doing nothing about the injustice that they're experiencing. When you see the atrocities that are happening to the innocent all over the world, Do you ever wonder, why does a good God allow evil and suffering in this world? Do you ever wonder, specifically, why does God allow the wicked to cause his people to suffer and seem to get away with it and prosper? Do you ever wonder, where's justice in all of that? When you experience affliction on a a personal basis, do you ever feel like God is distant and doing nothing about your suffering? Psalm 10 moves us from questions to confidence as it describes the affliction of the righteous, the arrogance of the wicked, and the justice of God. Psalm 10 this morning is going to, by God's grace, move us from questions to confidence as it describes the affliction of the righteous, the arrogance of the wicked, and the justice 
of God. And friends, my prayer as we study this psalm is that you will gain confidence so that you trust the Lord in times of trouble. Take your copy of God's Word. Look at Psalm 10 with me, please. Psalm 10. I want us to first look at the affliction of the righteous. Look there in verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It would be good for us to understand what's happening to God's people at this time uh, when this psalm was written by King David. One more time, just like in the 13th century, God's people are experiencing affliction at the hand of the wicked. King David is painfully aware that the people of God in Israel are experiencing affliction and oppression from wicked and ruthless people. Six times in Psalm 10, they're called wicked. In verse 16, if you'll notice that, they're called the nations, which indicates that these are likely enemies from surrounding countries who have infiltrated Israel But Calvin and other commentators suggest that these are not foreigners, that they're actually um, wicked people within Israel because everything about what's being described about these people, they're very familiar with the covenant of the Lord. Calvin says, by nations, David does not mean foreigners, but hypocrites who falsely boasted that they belong to the people of God. So these wicked hypocrites are abusing and inflicting injustice on their fellow Israelites. Regardless of who it is, whether they're foreigners or Israelites who are wicked, Psalm 10 describes the wicked that they are preying on the poor, the helpless, the fatherless, in the villages, in the outskirts of Israel. Notice the affliction, for example, in verse 2. Look at the affliction in verse 2. The wicked hotly pursue the poor. That word hotly pursue means to hunt down. And their victims are the poor, mentioned three different times. Now, you combine the fact that they keep, that David keeps calling them the poor, along with verse 3, where he describes the wicked as, look, in verse 3, greedy for gain, and it's very likely that this is economic oppression going on here. Powerful, greedy, influential people are preying on the poor people in Israel. And look at the imagery in verse 8. Look at the imagery in verse 8. Speaking of the wicked, he sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. The affliction of the righteous. Whatever's going on here is severe enough 
it's happening long enough that the righteous now ask God some questions. Look at verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? God, we're being afflicted. The wicked, like a lion, is hunting us down like we're prey. And you feel distant. It seems like you're actually hiding your eyes so that you don't see what's going on. The questions are intensified by the fact that the wicked are so arrogant about their evil. They are so successful in it. We don't just see the affliction of the righteous here. We see the arrogance of the wicked in verse 2 through 11. Look in 2. You see his arrogance. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And the people of God let cry out, let them be caught in their schemes that they have devised. For the wicked does what? He boasts of the desires of his soul. And the greedy one for gain curses and renounces the Lord. I mean, these guys are arrogant. And their arrogance affects every relationship that they have. Look in verse 2 and 3 there. Their arrogance causes them to pursue the poor, boast in himself, and renounce the Lord. Self, others, and God is affected by, in, in a severe way by their arrogance. And there in verse 3, you can see that these, these wicked people are just full of themselves. They boast in the what? The cravings of their own soul. They're full of their own desires. Verse 4, not just his arrogance, but his thoughts. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, you just see this contempt, this arrogance. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, being God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Van Gemeren says, the greedy have no regard for God or his commands. They, they praise themselves, but they spurn the Lord. Their goal in life is a purposeful avoidance of God. They're not necessarily atheists, but instead have conveniently chosen to live without God. Worship of creator God has been exchanged for worship of themselves as God's creatures. Romans 1 speaks to that, doesn't it? It's the essence and the heart of every sin. Man's arrogance that we live as practical atheists, as if there is no God. Psalm 14 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And even though many don't say it, wouldn't sign their name to it, 
they live like it. The wicked lives as if there's no God. William Plummer says, if sin had its way, it would both dethrone and annihilate God. As far as it can, sin acts and feels and thinks as if he doesn't even exist. His arrogance, his thoughts, look at verse 5, his ways. His ways do what? Well, he's wicked, so certainly they would not come to nothing. <laughs> but his ways prosper. And the people are God, of God are just going, this is maddening. We're being afflicted, but this guy's prospering. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in a situation like that? His ways prosper at all times. Speaking of God, your judgments are on high, but they're out of his sight. And as far as his foes, he puffs at them. This guy is successful, and he takes no thought of your judgment over his life whatsoever. He's unconcerned. He lacks any kind of spiritual discernment. Plummer says that, that the wicked are so blinded by sin, so in love with delusion, that without a supernatural change, they cannot perceive any beauty, even in the holiness of God. Verse 5 there, he puffs at his foes. What do you think that's indicating? He puffs at them. He sneers at them. He snorts at them. It's a term of contempt. He has, he has contempt for anyone who gets in the way. Look at verse 6, his confidence. The wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all of his generations, I shall not meet adversity. I mean, this guy is not only arrogant, he is confident. And why? Because probably his wealth, his position, his powerful, gives him a false sense of confidence. William Plummer again says, No one will be more surprised than the wicked at the depth and suddenness of his fall. <laughs> Verse 7. Uh, we've seen his arrogance, his thoughts, his ways, his confidence. Now look in verse 7 at his words. This is a deep dive into, into the arrogance of the wicked. Verse 7, his words. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Listen, friends, listen to a person's words because out of the heart... The mouth speaks. Verse 8 through 10, we've already read that, his actions. All of this causes him like a lion to take advantage and prey on poor, innocent, helpless victims. Every situation, the wicked are trying to turn for their advantage. And in verse 11, deep down it comes from a core belief. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. God has hidden his face. God will never see it. Isn't it interesting? 
that the righteous who are suffering feel like God has forgotten them. And the wicked who are prospering continue to propagate their evil because they think God's forgotten. He'll never see it. The mis- Van Gemmeren says, they mistake God's patience, God's lack of response, for God's lack of interest in justice. The questions of the righteous are intensified because of the arrogance of the wicked. They're prospering. They're successful. So we can see the equation, can't we? Just put it on a straight line. Here's the equation. The affliction of the righteous plus the arrogance of the wicked should equal what? The justice of God coming to deliver his people from their enemy. But justice doesn't seem to be happening here. So they question. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Others have phrased it differently. Why does a good God allow bad things to happen to his people? You ever wondered that? Walter Moberly gives us a helpful perspective on questions like this. Do you ever feel like when you're being afflicted or when you ask these questions that there's something wrong with even asking the question? Walter Moberly. The experience of anguish and puzzlement in the life of faith is not a sign of deficient faith. It is intrinsic to the very nature of faith. Friends, the the Psalms of lament exist to free us to ask our questions and express our puzzlement about the things that are going on under the sun. There are 150 psalms. One-third of them are the psalms of lament that give God's people permission to wonder and wrestle with difficult questions. This is not a deficient faith. The psalms of lament exist to teach us that questions are a natural part of faith. Look, friends, when life hurts and pain causes us to wonder if God has forsaken us, faith looks beyond our feelings to answer those questions with the eternal truth of the character and promises of God. And so every psalm of lament deals with the difficulties of life and then brings in the greater realities 
of the character and promises of God. And that's what Psalm 10 does. Psalm 10 moves us from the questions of verse 1 through 11 to confidence in verse 12 through 18. Confidence. Yes, the righteous experience affliction. Yes, the wicked seem to be prospering in their arrogance. But friends, we can have confidence in the justice of God. Verse 12 through 18. Let's read that. Verse 12 through 18. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the afflicted and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations shall perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Confidence in the justice of God. Verse 12 through 18, we hear King David's prayer of confidence based on the justice of God. Do you remember last week we said that it is highly likely, most scholars believe, that while Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 do stand alone, they're intricately connected. And one of the major reasons for that is because there's no inscription over Psalm 10. And the themes are so similar. The words, the context is so similar in both of these psalms. And last week we saw that King David's response to the affliction that was going on, the oppression that was going on in his um, country. Anybody will get gold stars if you can say this along with me. His response begins with praise and ends with prayer because both are based on the confidence that the Lord is the oppressor, uh, the stronghold for the oppressed and the avenger of the afflicted. Begins with praise, ends with prayer, and it's all based on the, the confidence that King David has. Now we see here in Psalm 10 that he's returning to that confidence again. He's highlighted the affliction of the righteous. He has sort of just been amazed at the arrogance of the wicked, but he ends up with confidence in the justice of God. Look at verse 12 through 15. 
you'll notice a chiastic structure there where 12 through 15 begin and end with a prayer. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted and ends with break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. This prayer, the king calls God to action. Arise, that's, that's a military call for, for action, divine intervention. It's linked to verse 1, where God seems to be standing far away. And now David says, arise, O Lord. You seem to be distant. And so in verse 12, lift up your hand and do what? Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. To break the arm is to utterly destroy their power to inflict this suffering. And do it thoroughly. Call them into an account until you find none. Don't you love that? Until you find none. Do this thoroughly. But in between there, in between 12 and 15, I want you to notice my favorite part of Psalm 10. Oh, has this been encouraging to me this week? If you have one of our ESG ESV journals that we gave you, highlight this, circle it, spend some time, just draw arrows over here and say, this is for us. Because David highlights four things that we know regardless of what we see and feel. When we experience affliction ourselves, when we see injustice happening all over the world to innocent, helpless, righteous people, and it feels like God is doing nothing about it. Here's four things we know, regardless of what we see and feel. Verse 14, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, so that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. I told you that was good. Look at the four parts of verse 14. The wicked has said, the Lord doesn't see. But verse 14, but you do see. You do see. The wicked in verse 11 is confident God's hidden his face. He'll never. But we're confident God sees, God knows everything. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. The Lord sees that affliction. Number two. Verse 14b. The Lord cares. He doesn't just see. He cares. For you note. He's taking notes. He notes mischief and vexation. 
and he notes it not merely because of his omniscience, but because of his love and his compassion for his people. He specifically notes the mischief and vexation, the wrongs done to his people. Do you remember that when the church of Jesus Christ was being persecuted by Saul, Jesus said to Saul, why do you persecute what? Me. God knows. God cares. Number three, the Lord has this. He's got it. You can be confident no matter what you see, no matter what you feel. He sees it, he cares about it, and he has this in his hands. 14c, why does God note it? So that you may take it into your hands. Oh, man, yes. That's awesome, friends. The Lord notes the wrongs done against his people so that he can take them into his hands. The Lord gets personally involved. The Lord takes our matters into his hands. We're never alone in our troubles. God's people, whether it's in Egypt or Babylon or in any country around the world being persecuted, whether you are experiencing affliction and times of trouble in your own home, you are never alone. The Lord takes your matter into his own hands. In verse 14d, the Lord can be trusted. To you, the helpless commits himself. Why? Because you have been the helper of the fatherless. The helpless commits himself to the helper. And God has a long track record of being the helper of the afflicted, the avenger of the afflicted, the stronghold of the oppressed. God has never forsaken his people. His justice might be delayed, the affliction might continue, but God has never forsaken his own. That little word, to you the helpless commits himself, is the word for abandon. We abandon ourselves into the capable hands of a God who can be trusted. Listen, friends, whatever you are struggling with, here are the four things we know, regardless of what we feel. The Lord sees, the Lord cares, the Lord has this in his hands, and the Lord can be trusted. Verse 16 through 18 ends this, basing all of that confidence on the character of God himself. Look at verse 16 through 18 again. How do we know this? Because this is who God is. This is the character and the promise of God. 16 through 18, 
the Lord is the sovereign king. See that in verse 16? The Lord is king how long? Forever and ever. I love that. Not just forever, but and ever. The emphasis is on his sovereign reign being eternal. But what about the nations? They perish. Do you remember in Psalm 9? We can be confident that our enemies will come to an end, but God and his people will endure forever. The Lord is the sovereign king. And that eternal king is personally, personally and intimately involved with his people. Look at verse 17. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. This is still Psalm 10 that began with, where are you? It feels like you're distant and doing nothing. It ends with, you hear, you will strengthen, you will incline your ear to the afflicted. And look at that. He strengthens those who are going through suffering doesn't always remove them from the suffering. 400 years in Egypt. God is accomplishing his purposes through the arrogance of the wicked and the suffering that exists under the sun. And God does not always rescue, from, rescue us from it here under the sun. He sometimes purposefully leaves his people in the suffering. Right, Joseph? Right, Job? Right, Jesus? And God accomplishes his purposes through it by strengthening them. Paul knew this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul said he was enduring all kinds of difficulty, and he says, three times I've asked God to please take this thorn in the flesh away. And all three times God said, nope, I've got purposes for this thorn. I'm doing something in you and through you in this suffering. But here is what God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Oh, friends. Verse 16, the Lord is a sovereign king. Verse 17, the Lord is a compassionate savior who hears the desires, the cries, the heart of the afflicted. He'll strengthen their heart. He inclines his ear. And then verse 18, the Lord is the righteous judge. You see that? Sovereign king, compassionate savior, righteous judge. Look at verse 18. You will incline your ear to do what? 
to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth, mere mortals, may strike terror no more. The Lord will bring justice. You can count on it. No matter what you see, no matter what you're feeling, the Lord is the righteous judge. There is coming a day when all things will be accounted for and reconciled. Psalm 10. We see the affliction of the righteous and the arrogance of the wicked. And when we experience a bit of that affliction ourselves, we don't have to wonder if God is distant and doing nothing because Psalm 10 moves us from questions to confidence. Friends, we can be confident that the Lord sees, the Lord cares, the Lord has this, and the Lord can be trusted. You know why? Because he is the sovereign king. He is a compassionate savior, and he is a righteous judge. And we see all of that vividly displayed in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Psalm 10. We see the kingship and the Savior and the, the judge, the justice of God in the cross of Christ. Jesus is the sovereign king of God's kingdom. Jesus is our compassionate Savior who enters into our affliction to rescue us from it. And Jesus is the righteous judge who will one day bring all wickedness to an end, look at the end of verse 18, so that wickedness and wicked people can strike terror no more. All of that accomplished through King Jesus and his cross. So until then, my friend, until then, we, just like God's people in Psalm 10, we can respond with confidence in the midst of affliction. We can trust God in times of trouble, whether it's happening all around us or whether it's happening to us. Psalm 10 teaches us ultimately that what we believe about God determines our response to affliction. What do you believe about God? It's revealed by how we respond to affliction. William Plummer. However sore may be the trials of his saints, God never finally nor totally forsakes them. True. God's withholdings are very grievous to his people at any time, but especially in times of trouble. But God's time of coming to the rescue is often the nearest when we think it is farthest off. The Lord says, not only have I not forgotten about you, I can't forget about you. Listen to this beautiful picture from Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah says, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt. 
O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion, the people of God, said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And God said, Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has written our names on God's heart. We can trust him. Let's pray together. Father, there's not much more to say about what we experience under the sun, what we see around us, what we experience ourselves, the way your people have suffered brutally for all the history of the world. But we say with Paul in Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Amen.